Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for Sunday, September 7th, 2014. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Dan McClintock, Minister of Missions and Family Life at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this morning is entitled, A Baptist Way to be Christian. We're in the middle of a series of sermons on what it means to be Christian for us here at Park Road Baptist Church. What does it mean for us as individuals and as members of this congregation? The first week, Amy talked about what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And she encouraged us to look for those kingdom moments and to share them with one another by way of hashtag kingdom of God is at hand. Last week, Russ talked about a Christian way to be human, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and that we can discover who we are, the people we are truly intended to be through that incarnational theology. God was in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, showing us how to be truly human. Today, we're going to look at the Baptist part of Park Road Baptist and talk about a Baptist way of being Christian. As you all perhaps know, my other part-time job is campus ministry at UNC Charlotte. I've been there for 20 years, and most of that time, our group has been made up of students from a variety of church backgrounds, with perhaps half of the group being Baptist. In recent years, students have discussed changing our Baptist campus ministry name. Not surprisingly, in order to omit the word Baptist. Part of the reason for that is that young people today are not denominationally oriented. Part of it may be the bad name that Baptists have earned in recent years due to infighting and division. And part of it is that for them, being Baptist is just no longer relevant. So it's fair to ask, is there any reason to hold on to being Baptist? And if so, what are the distinctives or particular convictions that make a Baptist a Baptist? At first glance, I might seem an unlikely candidate to expound on the virtues of being Baptist. I was baptized as an infant in a Methodist church and grew up in Pittsburgh, mostly not attending my parents' Presbyterian church. I didn't know any Baptists and wasn't aware of any brand of Baptist church in my city, though I'm sure there were some present somewhere. My introduction to Baptists came with my acceptance at Furman University. 
There was a line in the 1971 Furman catalog that said, there will be no drinking or dancing at Furman. So much for the battle between legalism and freedom. I remember that line well because my friends in Pittsburgh teased me mercilessly before I left for school. As it turned out, no drinking meant that drinking wasn't condoned by the administration. And no dancing, well, there actually were dances on campus, but apparently whoever created that rule recognized that Baptist students moving around on a dance floor with a total lack of rhythm didn't constitute dancing. <laughs> I eventually got involved in a Baptist church and then went to Southern Seminary as one of only two Presbyterian students at that school. Yes, I was the interloper who benefited from your cooperative program dollars. I eventually took Walter Shoden's Baptist History and Polity class and decided that I was, in fact, a Baptist at heart. I joined St. Matthew's Baptist Church in Louisville, and the pastor accepted me for membership despite my alien baptism. That's really what they called it. And some probably still do. When you're baptized in a non-Baptist church or by any other means than immersion, alien baptism. I love that. So I speak to you not as someone who was born into the Baptist family, but as one who chose to take on the Baptist mantle. In my life's experience as a Baptist, here are some of the things I've encountered. A fellow seminary student who grew up in a mountain church where handling snakes was almost routine. A rural church in Alabama where my friend with whom I was visiting that weekend was invited to preach on a Sunday evening. Not invited ahead of time, but there on the spot, Bud, why don't you come up and preach to us this evening? It was his home church, but still. At the other end of the spectrum, I was a member of a church in Norfolk, Virginia, where the ministers wore robes, like we do, and where the small choir consisted of paid professional singers. About half of the Baptist churches in France are charismatic. Amens are common during preaching. A amens are common. Thank you. And it's not unusual to hear people speaking in tongues, tongues other than French, and raising their hands even during worship. We know that today there are plenty of Baptist churches where the preacher preaches in jeans and a t-shirt and praise songs are projected onto a screen. 
I once had three Japanese students come to my office. They were new to our country and decided that they wanted to learn about Christianity. They visited four different Baptist churches in Charlotte on four Sundays in a row and came to me saying, we are confused. <laughs> That's not at all surprising. There are all kinds of Baptist groups and all kinds of Baptist churches. So what are the theological marks of a Baptist? What are the distinctives, the convictions, the specific ideals that Baptists rally around and that make a Baptist a Baptist? And are any of these distinctives relative to us here at Park Road today? It might be helpful first to give a brief historical perspective. No, contrary to what the successionist theory put forth, in the not-so-famous book, The Trail of Blood, we cannot trace our roots back to the Apostle Peter and the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. In fact, Baptists emerged along with Quakers and Congregationalists after the Reformation as part of the English separatist movement of the early 19th century. Thomas Helwes and John Smith founded the First Baptist Church on English soil in Spitalfield in 1612. As you can see on the front of your bulletin, Helwys, in separating from the official Church of England, declared that the king is a mortal man and not God, and therefore hath no power over the immortal souls of his subjects. It's no wonder that these early Baptists were considered dangerous political radicals. They argued for religious freedom, not only for themselves, but for all the king's subjects, whether they be Christian, Jew, or Muslim. From England, under persecution, the Baptists eventually came to America. And in 1638, Roger Williams, founded the first Baptist meeting house of Providence, Rhode Island. The Providence colony was established as a haven for religious liberty. I think it's interesting to note that for 60 years, the congregation in Providence met outside in good weather. Remember, this is Rhode Island and otherwise met in members' homes. They considered it vanity to construct a church building. Eventually, they did build a meeting house out of practical necessity, and in 1774, constructed the first Baptist church to have a steeple and a bell. An educated ministry was considered of primary importance and so a college was later established. The name of the college was the College in the English Colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Wisely, they later named it Brown University. A final note on Baptist history. 
As you may know, First Baptist in Charleston, South Carolina, is the oldest Baptist church in the South. I happened to serve as youth and college student minister there for several years after I finished seminary. The church originated in Kittery, Maine in 1682 and celebrated its 300-year anniversary while I was there. I thought it might take another century or so for them to agree on how to redecorate the sanctuary for the anniversary celebration. But still, I'm not sure that committee meetings can be counted as a Baptist distinctive. Sheridan, in his book, Four Fragile Freedoms, identifies four freedoms that taken together constitute the essence of being Baptist. None of them, standing alone, is uniquely Baptist. They are freedoms that are shared with believers of other denominations. But taken together, they help to give form to what it means to be a Baptist. Those four freedoms are Bible freedom, soul freedom, church freedom, and religious freedom. By Bible freedom, Sheridan means the historic affirmation that the Bible, under the Lordship of Christ, must be central in the life of the individual and the church. He affirms that Christians with the best and most scholarly tools of inquiry are both free and obligated to study and to obey the scriptures. In the schism that started nearly 40 years ago and divided the Southern Baptist Convention, the inerrancy of the, orig the original manuscripts of the Bible was used as a red herring by the conservatives in a move to take over the convention. Take over control they did, but it was never really about the authority of the Bible because moderate and conservative Baptists alike have always had reverence for scripture. I had a New Testament professor who said, it's not the difficult passages or the parts of the Bible I don't understand that give me the most trouble. Instead, what bothers me most are the passages I do understand, the passages that make sense to me but are hard to put into practice. I'm sure we can all think of a few of those passages. Like when Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or again, those troubling words of Jesus when he says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Much of the time, we're not good at denying ourselves, at voluntary sacrifice, or at following closely in the footsteps of Jesus. Another of my favorites that's easy to understand and difficult to practice, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone that loves is born of God 
and knows God. It's straightforward and sounds easy enough, but it requires a lifetime to learn and to master. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Soul freedom refers to the inalienable right and responsibility of every person to deal with God without the imposition of creed, the interference of clergy, or the intervention of civil government. Does this mean what I think it means? That I have the right and the responsibility to decide for myself what I'm going to believe? That no one has the right to impose their beliefs on, on me? That my dealings with God are between me and God? This can be a scary proposition. Perhaps not at Park Road, I've been here long enough to know, but out there in the world, lots of people prefer to be told what to believe, to have it spelled out for them in black and white. Early on when I was in France, I was leading a Bible study with a group of international students, 10 or 12 students who came from all over the world, Asia, Africa, South America, Europe, and even the Middle East. We were talking about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and it was fascinating to hear how many different insights and perspectives these students had, partly due to the way their faith was formed in their home countries. After some discussion time with varying views having been expressed, a young lady from Africa turned to me and said, Okay, Pastor, now you tell us, what does this passage really mean? I know that's not likely to happen here, but it was a clear example to me of a person wanting to be told what to believe, to be given the right interpretation, the proper answer, rather than wrestling with the freedom to discover the meaning for herself. We Baptists are not a creedal people. We've adopted various faith statements over the years, but none are intended to be binding upon the individual. I recall in Sheridan's class when we talked about what Baptists believe, he was quick to remind us that when Jesus talked about Judgment Day, there was no mention of a final theological exam or a doctrinal review. Instead, Jesus will say, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Yes, we have the right and the responsibility, scary though it may be, to deal with God on our own. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Church freedom is the affirmation that local churches are free under the Lordship of Christ to determine their membership and leadership 
to order their worship and work, to ordain whom they perceive as gifted for ministry, male or female, and to participate in the larger body of Christ, of whose unity and mission Baptists are proudly a part. This Baptist principle is sometimes referred to as the autonomy of the local church, and it explains why Baptist churches can be so different from one another and so varied in their styles of worship from one church to another, even in the same city or the same geographical area. It explains how one church can worship in robes using hymnals, while in another the pastor wears jeans and they project praise songs on a screen. It explains how a church in France can be charismatic and a rural Alabama church can welcome spontaneous preaching. Unfortunately, this freedom is perhaps the most in peril today in some Baptist circles because associations and state conventions would like to dictate what persons are eligible for church membership and who can or cannot be ordained for ministry. May we hold fast to the freedom of the local church to determine these questions for itself, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Finally, Sheridan reminds us that religious freedom is the historic Baptist affirmation of freedom of religion, freedom for religion, and freedom from religion, insisting that Caesar is not Christ and Christ is not Caesar. This stance was radical in the time of Thomas Helwes when he stood against the King and the Church of England, and it is just as radical today. It means the freedom to worship and practice one's faith, no matter what that faith might be, without harassment and without persecution. It means having the freedom to change religious beliefs or not to follow any religion at all. It means opposing formal prayer in public schools because that prayer serves to establish one religion over another and might be infringing on the religious beliefs of some. Roger Williams ensured that the Plymouth Colony was a haven for religious liberty because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I invited a friend and former student of mine, last year's BCM president, to visit Park Road today. She's here. And jokingly told her that after hearing my sermons, she might want to leave her Presbyterian roots and become a Baptist. She quickly assured me that wouldn't be the case, and I suspect her haste was due mostly to her experience with Baptists who are legalistic, narrow-minded, and authoritarian in their approach. The Baptists who have largely abandoned these four Baptist freedoms. I won't tell you where she ran into them, but as president, she did have statewide responsibilities. I responded to her by saying that real Baptists 
do still exist. Baptists who cherish their freedom. Baptists who are children of promise and who understand that it is for freedom that Christ set us free. I know these real Baptists exist because I've found you here at Park Road. May it always be so. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.